Kind of a loaded chapter, isn't it? You're probably you're already thinking, oh my gosh, what direction are we going to go with all of this stuff today? <laughs> well, I've been every direction you can think of. I've been everywhere, man. Isn't that a great song? I should have done Johnny Cash today. But well, we safely arrived at chapter 5. And I, tell you, I love this book because of the instruction and the challenges it presents. Now, some of you probably said, I bet he really likes this one verse we're going to get to later, but you know, double honor for people who preach and teach. Uh, I'll bypass that one. No, I'll, I'll deal with that one. But you know, Paul's letter here is really all about preparing us for what I would call the ultimate job interview. In other words, how to prepare to be used by God in a great way as, in your calling as disciples. Hence the series called Equip You. Now, Paul wrote uh, 1 Timothy uh, to instruct this kind of timid young man by the name of Timothy, of course, how to be a dynamic leader in the body of Christ. And, and my prayer would be that anybody who, who comes here and stays for a while will become dynamic leaders of one kind or another. It doesn't mean you have to be preaching or teaching. You don't have to be running stuff or anything, but that you, you learn how to be a leader in whatever place that God places you. Now, you've got to remember, as you, as you listen to what Lair read this morning, this book talks about things that relate specifically to the culture in which it was written. And so some of this stuff you've got to go, whoa, this is, not, this is weird stuff. Well, remember what was going on back in that day. I mean, for example, uh, a few weeks ago, uh, Paul talked about the role of women uh, in leadership in the church of Ephesus. We talked about that several weeks ago. Uh, then Paul talked about first century attitudes toward the consumption of alcohol. He addressed that, an attitude that's changed over the centuries that, as we kind of seen the damage uh, done by people who consume too much. And next week, we're going to actually talk about money. You can clench your, clutch your wallets and purses right now. Uh, but we're also going to talk about the role of slaves, which seems really pretty weird. But you've got to remember that Paul and Timothy were living in a society where about 30% of the workforce were slaves. So we're going to get to that next week. And so it's our job today that as we, we heard these passages read, as we kind of study them, to, to find what I would call underlying principles, what's underneath this, so that we can apply the truth of this scripture uh, to our daily lives and to uh, the ministry and also to this place that we call Restore. Now today we come across... Another one of these passages. And Paul is going to talk a lot about widows. Maybe you were surprised by that. Uh, particularly the care of widows, which is a pressing issue in the first century. Now, since women, as seems like always through history, uh, tend to outlive men, and, and there was no life insurance back in that day, there was no social security, uh, widows often found themselves in an extremely vulnerable position, totally unable to take care of themselves. Now, I'm not going to get into this, but I want you to remember something that Jesus did while he hung on the cross. Anybody remember that? He looked at John, and he said, John, this is your mother. And he said to Mary, his mom, and Mom, this is your son. I think this was somebody taking responsibility for a widow. Jesus could no longer do that. He passed that responsibility on to someone else. Now, on top of that, if you take a look at the Greek word widow, it doesn't refer only to women whose husband had died. It refers to any woman uh, that, um, for whatever reason, death, divorce, or desertion. 
And there were evidently a whole lot of those people in the first century. And the church had to set up a rather organized and detailed system of how to provide for care within their congregations. Now, I don't know of any American church that does anything close to what they were doing in the first century. And uh, part of that is there's such things as insurance, there's alimony, there's Social Security, there's public aid. There's all kinds of things today that people can draw on. Um, And in fact, women could enter the workforce, which is something they couldn't do then. They were told to stay home, be quiet, raise the kids. In fact, if they came to church, they would just sit in the back, keep quiet. And since life expectancy for men somehow over the years has kind of crept up to where uh, we're getting close to the life expectancy of women, um, women tend to start marrying men that are closer to their age. Uh, And so young widows who Paul was uh, discusses in detail are not nearly as common today as you might think. In fact, most churches uh, probably don't even have a list of widows in their congregation. I think in a couple of churches I passed out early, when one church was 3,000 members, there were some in there. And we knew who these people were. Uh, but I can't say that we had any systematic program to take care of them. Because a lot of support today doesn't really need to be done. But, <laughs> and there's always a but in scripture here, we do have a responsibility to live according to the true underlying principle. And that's what we're looking for, the underlying principle here and what Paul is saying, and that is that we have an obligation, an obligation to help people who are in need, especially people who have the greatest need and probably who are the most vulnerable in our society. And now in chapter 5, Paul is going to talk about how to deal with widows and elders and leaders in the church who fall into sin. Now, what I'm going to talk about today are three different principles here that come into play uh, that great disciples, I think, kind of assume for themselves and commit themselves to live by. As I put these messages together, I've always asked myself, okay, Barry, you're going to preach about this. How well are you doing? And uh, after I beat myself up and apologize and pray, uh, I know where, where I need to work with this. And I would hope that all of you do the same thing. Let's talk about this first This first principle. It is responsibility. I'm going to talk about all these words that end with ability. Responsibility. And so when Paul tells Timothy here, this young man, to take care of widows in his church and to do it in an organized way, he was just very simply saying, take responsibility for helping other people. Now, I don't know if you know the difference between a leader and a loafer. Anybody know the difference between a leader and a loafer? You've probably come up with your own way, but uh, a loafer says, it's not my job, it's not my problem, somebody else caused the mess, let them deal with it. They made their bed, they can sleep in it. I heard that from my grandparents a lot. A leader, on the other hand, says, if not me, then who? And if not now, then when? See, a leader, a disciple, takes responsibility. Ken Hunter, who's a friend of mine, is the head of Church Doctor Ministries, uh, uses the word catalyst. And I always like that word. He says, a catalyst describes a person who just gets things done. He says, catalysts are not consultants. I mean, because consultants only kind of recommend a course of action. A catalyst takes responsibility for making things happen. Now, I think the best example, I've actually written a book on this, a leadership lesson from the life of Nehemiah. Nehemiah is a great example 
Uh, he was a slave living in Babylon. He was the cupbearer to the king. But when he found out that his hometown of Jerusalem had been utterly destroyed, he became a catalyst for going back and rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem. See, leaders, here we are. Missing a few today, but leaders nonetheless, we take responsibility, not only for helping ourselves, uh, not just to climb up the ladder and get higher up and whatever higher up we have here at this place called Restore, but for helping other people get what it is that they honestly need. So simply put, leaders uh, take care of other people. And Paul says there are three ways we can do this. Here's area number one. He says, take care of those closest to you. And in verse 8, it tells you, if anyone does not provide for his relatives. Now, everybody here, y'all got relatives? Okay. And especially in his immediate family, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. You already heard Nancy talk today about the responsibility for her parents, for her mom. And if you, if you knew the rest of the family, her brothers and sisters, they're taking responsibility of somebody who is closest to them, their, their mom. See, when we hear these words today, we typically think of, you know, people who are not taking responsibility to be like deadbeat dads uh, who don't provide for their wife and kids. But Paul's words certainly would apply to this. But in the context of this chapter, he's referring to children not bothering to care for their parents at all. And brothers not really caring about their sisters. See, in the Greek, the, the, this phrase literally means for his own. But it could also mean close friends, and it could also mean servants. And again, I'm not going to go into, into this, but if you want to take some time to do, go back and read Luke chapter 7, about the first 10 verses, where of all people, a Roman centurion comes to Jesus and said, come home, come back with my house and do what? Heal my servant. There's a great example of taking care of somebody who lives within your household of faith, I would call it. So Paul is saying, look out for the people who are closest to you. Uh, if you have means and you've got someone close to you that's in need, you don't have to sit around wondering what God wants you to do. If you can help, help. 1 John 3.17, great verse. If anyone has material possessions, we all got them. You may say, well, I don't have as many as you do. Well, who cares? I, I, we're not here to look at everybody's checkbook, but you've got, got some means of some something, something. And you see a brother or a sister in need but have no pity. How can the love of God be in you? I care for people. So that brings us to the next area where we're supposed to offer some help. And we're to take care of those people who can't take care of themselves. Now, Paul says here in verse 5, widows indeed. Widows indeed, referring to those who were truly in a need who had no one else to take care of them. Now, we've already heard about a uh, mother being moved into a nursing home. We have other people that are on palliative care. We all probably know people like this who no longer can really take care of themselves. And it moves us, people of compassion, to do what we can for those people. Now, we see that in verse 6. We saw, see it also in verse 16 of the text. It says, if any woman who is a believer has widows in her family... She should help them and not let the church be burdened with them so the church can help the widows who are really in need. So we help this group of people so this other group of people doesn't have to help these people. We just take care of people. Now his point is, 
I think that there should be some sort of a system in place to look out for people who have nobody looking out for them. Uh, to make sure everybody's kind of covered. I mean, churches have the opportunity to do this every week. We kind of got this goofy little uh, text message thing amongst, I think it's amongst men in this church. <laughs> Is that right, Anthony? They're all, all men in there. It's a pretty goofy deal. Some of you are on that thing. But it's kind of a way of looking out for one another, telling one another kind of what's going on. Uh, I had some prayer requests from Jeff this morning that I've already passed on to Jimmy. Uh, We see things like that to pray for these people, whatever. We're looking out for one another. Uh, In the same way, some people don't work because they don't work and they don't want to work. They're not willing to take responsibility. Those people, that's a whole other subject. It would be wrong for us to try to enable people. Um, it's equally wrong to turn our back on people who are desperate in need. Now, it's kind of on the one hand and on the other hand here. On the one hand, Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 3, if any man will not work, what? You know how that finishes? Neither shall he. I heard that quite often when I was wake, woken up at 6 o'clock in the morning and told to get my lazy butt out into the strawberry patch and start picking strawberries so you want to eat any later. I heard that quite often. If you expect to eat potatoes this fall, you'll be out digging potatoes this fall. Uh, I learned that pretty early. You want to ride a bike? Well, I got your tires. You want to ride your bike? The tires will be released when you do such and such. I learned 1 Thessalonians 3.10. Now, that's on one hand. On the other hand, we are to practice compassionate generosity to people who cannot take care of themselves. That's why we need to practice wisdom and discernment. Because there are a lot of people out there who are looking for a handout that don't need it. And then Paul says, take care of those who take care of you. So after talking about the widows, he now talks about the church's relationship uh-oh, to elders the male leaders in your congregation or the leaders in your church. It says in verse 17, the elders, that's that Greek word presbuteros. And it's interesting, I hate to say this, but the true meaning of presbuteros is the old man. <laughs> the old man who directs the affairs of the church well are worthy of double honor, especially those whose work is preaching and teaching. And this wants me to shout out, Amen. (laughs) Wow, a double honor. I love the sound of that. Now, my wife would probably say, you already got enough. (laughs) Well, true. Uh, The word honor, which Paul uses here in verse 3 while discussing widows in need, really means respect, a reward, and it would include, I suppose, financial support. He's saying, in effect, make it a point to honor people who serve well as leaders. I mean, that's kind of a general way of saying this. Now, this applies to, well, it applies to me, the person who's preaching today. It also applies to Ed, who sees to it that he goes to the meetings and finds out what's going on over someplace else. It applies to Anthony who's doing it. It applies to anybody who's got some way of interacting with other people who are taking a lead in something. Now, that's the way it works. Uh, This one applies to preaching today, but everyone who just sees to it that the ministry keeps running. Do you realize in the last three years, a tremendous percentage of pastors have quit? A lot of churches closed during the COVID era. 
But a startling number of pastors, just plain simple, bailed out. That's frightening. What's the reason for pastors quitting? Well, I follow these kinds of things. And certainly COVID had something to do with it. When you, if you're a small church and you lose something like 60% of your congregation during COVID, there's not much there. But if you ask pastors why they quit, it's not the hours they have to put in. It's not the pay. It's their lack of appreciation. They just don't feel appreciated for what they do. Now, understand, I, I get a lot of good feedback. I, I'm not here to whine and crab about myself today uh, because this is, a, this is a pretty good deal here. <laughs> I do this for nothing. I was told I shouldn't, and I can't, but I would. Okay, so you understand that. Uh, but I also know uh, many who serve faithfully week after week, and they never receive some of the, the honor they, they need. Yeah, we need to do that. In fact, we probably, before I leave today, is just to thank everybody who's here. Just go up to them and say, thanks for being here. I honor you for just being here. Both thanks for coming back from Bolivia and showing up again. It's really good to have you here again to give some honor. Now, I've heard people say, well, pastors shouldn't be doing it for the recognition. Yeah, that's point taken, I guess. But if you're on the receiving end of their ministry, or on the receiving end of anybody's ministry, you have a responsibility to express gratitude and to show honor. Now, I am not here today making an indirect request for you to pat me on the back because my cup is pretty full and my cup pretty much flows over. This is, however, a direct command, I think, that you look at those people who provide spiritual leadership in your life, wherever that comes from, and find a way to give them the honor that they deserve. You know, I've got a son and a daughter-in-law who are working in a ministry today, you know, dealing with people who have dementia or Alzheimer's. Uh, they were just rewarded again for their work by some corporation. That's how that works. Give honor to whom honor is due. See, a mature believer appreciates what other people do and then knows how to show it. So leaders live by this this responsibility. But here's the second principle. And it's the principle of accountability. Now, when Paul's talking about widows in the church, um, that the church will support, he's very specific in what to look for. And I don't know if you remember this. He said they must be over 60 years old. Well, okay, that's in that day. She'd been faithful to her husband. She's well known for her good deeds. In other words, there was some accountability for them to be able to offer some help. Now, later in verse 19, we heard Paul talks about how to deal with elders. And again, we're talking about church leaders who fall into sin. And so he also says there's another level of accountability. It says, do not entertain, in verse 19, an accusation against an elder, a leader, unless it's brought by two or three witnesses. Well, that's a pretty good idea because this, this provides some accountability uh, in that it makes it more difficult you know, for just one person to fire off one, one random unsubstantiated allegation. Uh, and it also holds the elder accountable in that such an accusation is made. It's going to be taken seriously. Two or three people. Verse 20 says, those who sin are to be rebuked publicly so that others may take warning. When's the last time you ever seen that in a church service? 
Who wants to go first? <laughs> well, this, that's a, a tough one. If you have a question about that, Jimmy will answer it later. <laughs> but I'm going to help get you off the hook here, Jimmy. This doesn't mean that when a leader fails, we are to shame them and humiliate them in front of everyone. That's not at all what this means. It, do, it does mean that we are to deal without pretending that it ever happened. Verse 21, I charge you in the sight of God and Christ Jesus and the elect angels, well, he's bringing in the heavy hitters here, to keep these instructions without partiality and to do nothing out of favoritism. So when you think of a leader falling into sin, we typically think of it's got to be some moral failure or maybe some financial misconduct. Uh, but uh, that's not where accountability ends. Uh, this must be accountability in all areas of a leader's behavior. And some rules, and the same rules, guess what, should apply to everybody. Now, several years back, I was still working, working part-time, not part-time, occasionally for church doctor ministries as a church consultant. And, and I, I went to a church in which a young man who happened to be the director of youth ministries in that church, uh, they wanted him to be removed because they said he had a habit of speaking harshly and profanely to the youth in his youth group whenever they misbehave. Now, obviously, that's not a good thing, and obviously something should be done. The problem was, which I discovered, was that the pastor of this church also had an explosive temper and also yelled, screamed, and swore at people and called elders by name in the sermon. Did anybody ask him to step down? No. Why not? The rules are different for different people. Well, that's totally unacceptable. I wrote that in my report. <laughs> I said it when I talked to the congregation. You know, to be able to hold, pe- hold people accountable is one thing in your church. To hold them unfairly is unacceptable. We're all on the same page. See, godly leaders understand that the rules apply to them in the same way that they apply to you. I'm not living by a different set of standards. If you ever see me living by a different set of standards, call me on it. If I ever see you living by a different set of standards than this office to be, we may have a conversation. I'm not looking at anybody in particular. (laughs) And hopefully we'd all have it the same way. See, godly leaders expect accountability. From others, they demand accountability for themselves. Now, have you ever heard this before? Ed probably has. Frank has his privileges. You ever hear that term in the military somewhere along the way? That may be true sometimes <laughs> in terms of pay or perks, but it's not true in terms of character or behavior. Uh, we're all accountable. Just because he's the pastor and he happens to have a doctorate doesn't make him any different than somebody who just has a grade school education. doesn't mean diddly. I mean, even the guys in prison, how come we call you doc? I said, I have no idea. What, what, do, you, what do you think? Nickname? I think that's good enough. You want to see my doctorate? <laughs> no, nah, doesn't make any difference. Here's the third principle. Inevitability. That's a good word for you. Inevitability. What do I mean by inevitability? Well, a leader understands that eventually, eventually the scales will balance and the truth will win. This is what Paul says in verses 24 and 25. The sins of some men are obvious. Reaching the place of judgment ahead of them, the sins of others trail behind them. In the same way, good deeds are obvious, and even those that are not cannot be hidden. It's inevitable. Good and bad show up. Paul is saying that everything we do eventually comes to light. There are some who 
who have seemingly built successful lives, but it's built on a house of cards, it's built on, a ho- on, on sand, eventually it's going to fall. There are some who work their entire life without any, let's say, external or worldly success visible to the naked eye, and eventually their successes will be obvious to everyone. At the same time, we go back to the Old Testament, Numbers chapter uh, 32, uh, verse 23, it says, be sure your sins will find you out. That's a kind of a scary little verse. Your sins will find you out. That's what Paul is saying here. And he's also saying that your good deeds will also find you out. Now, which would you, I'm asked Luke, which would you rather have me know the good deeds? <laughs> I find out about good or I have to find out about bad deeds. Yeah, the good. That's, well, that's all of us. That's all the way all of us feel. See, when Jesus told the story about the wise man who built on the rock and that foolish guy who built his, his condo on the sand, he made the point that it's what foundation of both structures would ultimately become obvious. That's the principle of inevitable inevitability. Try saying that three times in a sermon. Now, we've seen it played out. Uh, I've seen it played out in my life in some mega churches that completely collapsed. I've seen it in parachurch ministries where they suddenly collapsed. Some are built to last, some aren't. But rather than to point fingers at them, I mean, again, we're not called to be condemners here. We're called to be gospelers. It's better that we each take a look inward and look at our own lives and consider how inevitability applies to us. Now, I'm not going to ask you, we're going to have open witness time now, or confession. Let me ask questions, because these are the questions I ask myself. Are there areas of, of my life, are there areas of your life that need to be reinforced? A little extra cement in there, a little extra rock. Are you on the overledge financially? Or, well, eventually, you know, it would catch up with you unless you do something now to change the course of the inevitable. Or is your marriage or relationship uh, to your family on shaky ground? So this is the time to make some effort to build something solid into it. Is your spiritual life all but non-existent? Well, if it would be, chances are you wouldn't be here. Are you just kind of going through the motions? Let's be honest, we can all go through the motions without emotions sometimes. But now is the time to get serious about devotion, get serious about obedience. See, when Jesus was talking to the church in Sardis, and I may do a series on the seven churches in Revelation, so that make a really great study. It scared the bejabbers out of all of us. We'll be like, well, where does the restore fit in there? <laughs> but in uh, chapter uh, chapter three, he talks to Sardis, and he says, "There's a scary, a scary little phrase. I know your deeds. I know your deeds. I know what's going on in your church." And he goes on. He says, "You have a reputation for being alive, but you are dead." And then he says, "Wake up." <laughs> Strengthen what remains and is about to die. Wow. See, those who play fast and loose with the inevitability need to heed the words of Jesus. To wake up, focus on what really matters, change the direction of your life, change the direction of a ministry. See, disciples, hear us. We all have one thing in common, and that's that we're going 
where we need to go because our lives are moving in the right direction. That's my prayer, that all of our lives are moving in the right direction, that our lives are moving towards sound biblical principles, including the three that we looked at today. Responsibility, learning to take care of other people. And if it's not me, then who? And if it's not now, then when? Or accountability. We expect others to be accountable to us, and we demand accountability from ourselves, and we hold ourselves to the same standard that we would hold everybody else to. And then that last one, inevitability. That which your life is built on will eventually become obvious. So when it comes time, so it's time now to make sure that your life is built on a solid foundation of life in Jesus in obedience to his word. That's where all great leaders are going. Now, if I'm going to sum this up, I'm going to sum it up in just uh, 10 words, maybe. I don't know if they're 10. You can count, somebody will count them and hold me accountable later. Um, you do this by staying focused on the center of your faith, Jesus Christ. That's how you do it. May God bless all of us in our leadership journey. Amen.